This afternoon we have three different scripture readings in connection with what we confess in Lord's Day 19. The first is from 1 Corinthians 3, the verses 10 through 15. Before we um, begin our readings, I want to mention that each of the three readings corresponds with a different one of the, po- um, the three points of the sermon concerning the final judgment. This reading um, connects with the third point that we can find comfort because our, um, our fellow believers and also ourselves will be rewarded when Christ returns. 1 Corinthians 3, the verses 10 through 15. Here Paul says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved but only as through fire. So far, our reading from 1 Corinthians 3, we turn now to 2 Thessalonians 1 and read the verses 1 through 12. And this reading is in connection with the second point for the sermon. We are comforted because all of Christ's and also our enemies will be punished. So this deals with the punishment of unbelievers when Christ returns. 2 Thessalonians 1, we'll read the entire chapter. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, afflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints 
and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we finally turn to the last book of God's Word, to Revelation 20. Revelation 20, the verses 11 through 15. And this corresponds finally with our first point for the sermon that we can be comforted because Christ will be glorified by the final judgment. Revelation 20, starting at verse 11. Here the Apostle John says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Please turn with me in your books of praise to Lord's Day 19. Question and answer 52. This afternoon, the text for our sermon is what God's words um, teaches and summarizes concerning um, the final judgment. And question and answer 52, we confess as church, what comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? In all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven, the very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse from me. He will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation but he will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. So far, our confession, I'd encourage you to keep both your books of praise and your Bibles handy as we'll refer to them throughout the sermon. Dear brothers and sisters who are loved by our Savior Jesus Christ, 
This afternoon, our catechism asks us, what comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? Now, perhaps the thought of judgment makes you frightened rather than comforted. But if this is the case, do you remember what John says in 1 John 4, verses 17 through 18? He says that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Why? For fear has to do with punishment. We do not need to fear the final judgment because fear has to do with punishment. And brothers and sisters, you who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, as Romans 8 verse 1 teaches us. We don't need to fear judgment because there is no condemnation in store for us. Because you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the theme for this sermon this afternoon, it may also be your personal confession. I am comforted because I believe that the final judgment is coming. I am comforted because I believe that the final judgment is coming. And the three points form three different purposes for why the final judgment must happen. And as we go through them, we will see how each purpose for the final judgment also brings us as believers comfort. The first reason for the final judgment, the first reason we are comforted is because Christ will be glorified by the final judgment. The second reason I am comforted is because all his and all of my enemies will be punished. And finally, the third reason that the final judgment brings comfort is because my fellow believers and I will be rewarded. So firstly, I'm comforted because Christ will be glorified. Now for the final judgment to be comforting, we must first know what the final judgment is. And the first thing we must understand is that when Christ returns, Everyone will be judged, believers and unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, it says that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Everyone will be judged. Now, what does, what does the final judgment look like? Well, I'd encourage you to turn with me to Revelation 20. Revelation 20, in verses 11 through 15, John describes this final judgment. John says in verse 12 that, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And notice here, brothers and sisters, that there are two different sets of books that John is describing. First, there are the books, plural, and then there is the book singular, which is the book of life. Look at how verse 12 continues. He says that the dead were judged by what is, was written in the books, according to what they had done. 
When Christ returns, the judgment will be according to what is in the books, not the book of life, but the books where God records our deeds. You see this again at the end of verse 13. It says at the end of verse 13 that they were judged, each one of them, how? According to what they had done. The final judgment is a judgment of works. Christ will judge us according to our actions, according to our words, even according to our private thoughts and desires. But some of you might, might, might be thinking, shouldn't, shouldn't this make us afraid? How can, how can the judgment of our works bring us comfort as we confess in the catechism? Well, it's important that we know that the purpose of the final judgment is not to determine whether we go to heaven or to hell. If you believe in Christ, you are already justified. You are righteous before God. And the final judgment, it will not change this. Jesus said in John 5 verse 24 that whoever believes in him does not come into judgment. Rather, he has passed from death to life. And this means that believers will, will never be condemned, no matter what the final judgment looks like. And this is backed up by what we read in Revelation 20 verse 15. Notice why people are thrown into the lake of fire. It says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. People are condemned to the lake of fire if their name is not found written in the book of life. But if you believe in Jesus, if he is your savior and your master, you may be confident that your name is written in the book of life, that you will not be thrown into the lake of fire. So at this point, we've seen from Revelation 20 that the final judgment is according to works. And yet, our works aren't the basis of why we go to heaven. We are justified by our faith, not by our works. So why then is the final judgment necessary? What is the purpose of opening the books? What, what, is, what is the reason that Jesus will reveal our actions and then judge us according to our actions? After all, Jesus already knows who he's going to acquit. He, he, knew, he has known that from eternity. Well, congregation, the final judgment that will examine our deeds, it serves three different purposes. And first and, and most importantly, judgment day is there so that Christ may be glorified. Judgment Day is there so that Christ might be glorified. Do you not long, brothers and sisters, to see your beloved Savior glorified? Because when Christ first came to earth, his glory was not recognized, was it? No, Jesus was ridiculed. He was a man of sorrows. He died on the cross experiencing God's wrath. He was ridiculed by unbelievers, mocked by them. 
And if that wasn't enough, think about our world around us today. Even today, Jesus is rejected and despised by so many. He is even persecuted in his body, the church. And this Jesus, whose glory was not and still is not so often recognized, he will come again. Our Savior, our King, he will sit on his great white throne. Every knee shall bow before him. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone will recognize that Jesus is the Lord of glory. That is the first reason that Christ will be glorified. Christ will also be glorified because the final judgment, it will make us as believers rejoice in our salvation so much more. Think about it. Right now, I am thankful to Christ for all that he has done for me. He has, he has saved me from all my sins, even those sins that, that I used to be so ashamed of. But how much of our sin do we actually know here on earth? It is such a tiny percentage. But when the books are opened and I see all the sins that Christ has saved me from, I will understand that much more completely all that Christ has saved me from. I will understand that much more how undeserving I am and how gracious God has been to me. I will understand that much more fully all that Christ had to suffer to redeem me. Brothers and sisters, if we praise Christ now for our salvation, imagine how much more great and more joyful we will be and enthusiastic to praise Christ on Judgment Day. We will li also listen to every single one of the sins in, in that public courtroom. We will listen to every single sin that God has endured throughout the history of the world. It, it, it's, it's, all, it's too much, actually, for our minds to, comp to, to comprehend. Will our minds and our hearts not be overwhelmed with the incredible patience the incredible mercy of our God. How God endured so many sins committed against him. Want, wanting everyone to have time to repent and believe. Believing in the final judgment, it brings such an incredible comfort and a joy. Because we will know our God that much more fully. I will understand so much more clearly all that I have been saved from. And I will joyfully praise and glorify God for the abundance of his mercy. This, brothers and sisters, this is why judgment must come. This is why I take comfort in the final judgment. Jesus will be glorified. 
And we will see so much more clearly how great our God truly is. How deep runs not only his justice, but also his mercy and his love. We will see so much more clearly all that we have been saved from. This is the first reason for judgment. We come to our second point now and we see that we will see that we are also comforted because all of Christ's and my enemies will be punished. The second reason for judgment day, brothers and sisters, is to establish how intensely each unbeliever will be punished for eternity. I'll say that again. The second reason for judgment is to establish how intensely each unbeliever will be punished for eternity. As Jesus opens the books that Revelation 20 speaks of, and as he reveals the wicked deeds of unbelievers, he will assign to each unbeliever a punishment that is directly in proportion to their deeds. In Luke 12, Jesus tells a parable about the master who comes home from a journey and examines how his steward managed his possessions while he was gone. And Jesus says that there are different punishments for different unfaithful stewards. He says that the servant who knows his master's will but does not get ready or act according to his will, this steward will receive a a severe beating. But Jesus also says that the one who does not know the master's will and does what deserves a beating, he will receive a light beating. And then Christ summarizes, everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. So clearly there is a difference in how unbelievers are punished in eternity. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 11 when he warned that judgment day would be more bearable for for Sodom. Judgment day would be more bearable for Sodom than for those cities who rejected him and the miracles he did. Now, no matter the exact punishment that the individual unbeliever receives, we know from Scripture that hell is a dreadful place of torment for every unbeliever. Jesus describes hell as an unquenchable fire, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. In the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man begs Lazarus just to cool his tongue with water because he's in anguish, but but his plea is denied. And maybe, um, maybe turn with me to Revelation 14. Revelation 14 starting at verse 9 and going to the end of verse 11, it describes the horrors of hell. It says, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, here describes the punishment, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, 
and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Brothers and sisters, perhaps some some of you struggle with chronic pain. Throughout the day, it hurts to move. Perhaps it even hurts to think. Sometimes you can't even sleep that the pain is so bad. It, It makes you long for heaven, for when you'll have rest from your pain. But verse 11 says that they have no rest, day or night. Rather, it says that the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. It is a terrible thing to think about. The congregation recently, a teaching called annihilationism has been getting more popular in the broader Christian world. Annihilationists, they teach that unbelievers will only be punished for a finite length of time and then God will will snuff them out of existence. You see, annihilationists, they are overwhelmed with the thought of someone being punished forever. And they argue that for someone to be punished for an infinite length of time for for a finite sin, it, it seems to be unjust. But congregation, we currently know the offensiveness of sin only in part. And annihilationism, it minimizes the fact that sin, though, though being finite in time, it's, it's committed against the infinite God. This means that sin deserves an infinite punishment, eternal death. One of the clearest indicators that hell lasts forever comes from the word eternal, which is found in 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Now, annihilationists, they argue that the word translated as eternal, it it only means a really long period of time. But in the New Testament, eternal, it usually refers to an imperishable nature a nature that doesn't end. The Bible says that hell's fire is unquenchable. It doesn't end, Matthew 3, verse 12. The Bible says that their worm does not die, Mark 9, verse 48. And we just read from Revelation 14, verse 11, that the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And what about Matthew 25, verse 46? the parable of the goats being being separated from the sheep on judgment day. Jesus says that the goats, the, the unbelievers, they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go to eternal life. Side by side, Jesus uses the word eternal to describe both the unending heavenly bliss for, for believers and also the unending hellish agony for unbelievers. Obviously, Jesus means forever for both believers and for unbelievers. 
a congregation, did the annihilationists, do they get everything wrong? Well, no. Because they are rightfully overwhelmed with the horrors of hell. Who can imagine someone being tormented for eternity in utter darkness by a fire that does not stop consuming? It is, it is awful. But rather than deny Scripture's clear teaching, the terror of hell should make us that much more concerned for the eternal well-being of others. When we lack concern for our neighbor's eternal destiny, does, does it not show that we have failed to grasp what hell really is? In his book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, Nabil Qureshi, who, who grew up Muslim, he frequently wonders why Christians were, were not concerned to tell him about Christ. Did, do they perhaps not take their Bible all that seriously? What their Bibles say about hell? Congregation, may God impress upon us the seriousness of hell. May he spur us into action so that we are truly concerned about the eternal well-being of our unbelieving neighbors and co-workers. Now, at the same time, the catechism, it also says that the everlasting condemnation is a comfort. It is a comfort to believers who suffer oppression. Consider, consider the Thessalonian Christians. In 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 4, Paul mentions the various persecutions that they were enduring. And we know from Acts 17 that the Thessalonians, that they faced a, a great hostility. And Paul encourages them to remain steadfast because their unjust suffering, it will not last forever. There will be a day of reckoning. Brothers and sisters, you may have suffered horrendous evils at the hands of others. It's possible that, that even now you, you feel trapped and alone. But like Paul and the Thessalonians, you can take comfort that when you believe in Christ, your enemy is Christ's enemy. There will come a day of reckoning when those atrocities will be answered for. Your desire for justice, it will be satisfied. Commit to the Lord all the, the hurt, all the wrongdoings that, that burden and weigh you down. Be comforted because Christ has promised that perfect justice will be executed. Now we have seen that that judgment day is comforting because Jesus will be glorified and that all his and my enemies will be punished. But let us not remain here because greater still is the comfort and the joy that judgment day has to offer us. Which is why our catechism, it also says at the end that Jesus will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. This is the third reason why the final judgment, why, why it provides us with comfort. 
because my fellow believers and I will be rewarded. This is our final point. Brothers and sisters, unless we remember who our judge is, thinking about the final judgment, it will only make us afraid. We, we need to remember who our judge is. Our catechism, it reminds us that our judge from heaven is the very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse from me. My judge is also my savior. My judge is the person who loves me more than anyone else in the world. And in his love, the judge wants us to receive a favorable verdict. But what, what is the point of Jesus opening the books and examining the deeds of believers? After all, we've already established that they are justified by faith in Christ. So what is the point of Jesus opening the books and judging our deeds? Well, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians 3. We read from this earlier. 1 Corinthians 3. We will see in 1 Corinthians 3 that one of the reasons Jesus judges the deeds of believers is, is not to justify them by their deeds, but rather so that Jesus might assign us a heavenly reward, which is in proportion to our deeds. If we look at verse 12, Paul distinguishes between how different Christians work in this world. We might be working with gold, with silver, with precious stones, with wood, with hay, or with straw. These building materials, they differ in quality, just like the actions of believers differ in quality. Some actions of Christians are more pleasing to God than others. Now notice what it says at the end of verse 13. It says there that, um, oh yeah, at the very end of the verse, that the fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. In other words, Christ is going to, to judge our actions. He's going to subject our actions to the fire of his judgment. His fire will test how we have lived, and then he will reward us for our actions which please him. And you see this in, in verse 14. It says that if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Think also of the parable of the talents. The servant who earned 10 talents for the master, he received a reward of 10 cities. The servant who earned five, or, or earned five talents for the Lord received five cities. We are rewarded by Christ in proportion to and according to our actions. Finally, let's look at verse 15. It says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Brothers and sisters, let's, let's take that to heart. When we serve ourselves in this life, 
rather than Christ, it is, it is ultimately to our own detriment and loss. We lose out on the reward that Christ desires to bestow upon us. However, notice again what verse 15 says. Our actions do not affect our salvation, our, our justification. Verse 15, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. There are Christians who will pass through Christ's judgment, but most of what they have done will not survive Christ's judgment. And those actions will not receive Christ's reward. Our Belgic Confession actually says the same thing. I invite you to turn with me to page 508 to Article 24 of the Belgic Confession. Page 508, Article 24. This article is describing our sanctification and the good works that flow out of the root of faith. And look what it says near the end of page 508, about five, five lines up from the end of page 508. It says, These works, proceeding from the good root of faith, are good and acceptable in the sight of God, since they are all sanctified by his grace. I just want to pause here quickly to note that when we have believed in Christ, we are, we, we are able to please God now in this life with our actions. I want, I want to pause to note that because sometimes I think the words of Isaiah ring so loudly in our ears that all our works are like filthy garments in the sight of the Lord. And while that is true regarding our justification, at the same time, this is true that once we have believed in Christ and are united to Christ, we can begin to please God because our works are sanctified in his grace. Moving on to the next paragraph, the next paragraph, it starts by saying that our good works, they can't merit us anything. In fact, our good works make us indebted to God rather than he to us. We don't earn wages from God, in other words, by our good works. God isn't somehow indebted to us for the good works that we do. He doesn't, he doesn't have to give us anything for our good works. And while that's true, let, let's also look at the last line of this second, of this paragraph. It says, meanwhile, we do not deny that God rewards good works but it is by his grace that he crowns his gifts. In other words, brothers and sisters, it is entirely scriptural to believe that God graciously rewards believers for the good works that they do here in this life. But, but what does this reward look like? Well, we need to be careful not to say more than scripture does about this reward, but but it is important to say something. Why? Why is it important to, to say something? Well, our catechism, it speaks about the heavenly joy and glory that Christ will bring us into when he returns. But congregation, does it sometimes happen that 
we are not excited for heaven. We often sing, come Lord Jesus, Maranatha. But I think it's, it's sometimes the case, especially for, for teenagers, for young adults, that, that sometimes inwardly we think, yes, come Lord Jesus, but, but not too quickly because I have a whole lot of living that I want to do first. Why is this? Well, maybe we don't want Jesus to come just yet because we don't realize what eternal life will look like. Maybe we think that when Christ returns, it's going to be like, like the comic strips in the newspapers, you know, the ones that show believers floating around on clouds, strumming harps and singing hymns. Now, don't get me wrong, I, I, I'm sure there is going to be singing in heaven. There's probably even going to be harps. But when Christ returns, the new heavens will descend and they will be united to a very real and a very physical new earth. And when the Bible speaks of a new earth, this doesn't mean an entirely different kind of earth, but rather a better earth, a purified earth. How do we know this? Because when God finished creating the world in Genesis 1 and 2, he said, behold, it is very good. We humans were designed to live in this good creation, to walk and to talk with God here. So does God plan to, to just get rid of his good creation, to, to start over? No. That would be the same as letting Satan win. Will God let Satan ruin forever the good world which he created? No. Is God a God who gives up? Or is our God a God who saves, who redeems, who restores? God plans to restore this physical world when Christ returns. Think, think of all the exciting things that you hope to do here on this earth. When Christ returns, you will have an eternity to do all sorts of these exciting good things. But on top of that, you will, have, you will experience none of the sorrows, none of the afflictions that limit or restrict our joy here on earth. Congregation, is it perhaps possible that one of Satan's greatest victories is that he has convinced us that heaven is not going to be all that exciting? We are physical beings created for a physical world. But if Satan convinces us that heaven is, is somehow about floating around on clouds and, and strumming harps, it'll be much easier for him to convince us to live for this life rather than for the life to come. You see, the saying, you can't take it with you when you go, it, it is actually not true in some sense, for Christians. If we couldn't take it with us, why would Jesus tell us to invest for our eternal futures? So, dear brothers and sisters, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy or where thieves break in and steal, but rather, store up for yourselves riches in heaven. Brothers and sisters, work 
work in God's kingdom. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. In his abundant grace, God will reward your good works. We're nearing the end of this this sermon, and I want to take a moment to add a personal note. I have been in your midst for, for a little over four years now, and Brothers, I I have seen your love for Christ. Brothers and sisters, I, I have mentioned on multiple times how thankful I am to be a member of Ancaster and how how excited I have been to see the work of the Holy Spirit in this congregation. I have seen and experienced your loving hospitality. I have watched and heard. How, how many of you share your faith with, with your unbelieving neighbors and, and your co-workers. You have taken time to, to raise awareness for, for the rights of, of, our unbelie- of our unborn babies. You have visited our seniors, those who are lonely. You watch over and exhort each other to live faithful lives for Christ. I have seen many of you join the D groups to seek accountability, to to spur each other on in love and good works. And so many good deeds are not even known but done in private. It's my prayer, dear brothers and sisters, that you might continue to honor Christ, that you will store up treasures in heaven, that your reward might be very great. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, encouraging one another, and all the more as we see that final day drawing near. So in conclusion, brothers and sisters, the final judgment is incredibly important to our faith. It is comforting, even exciting to think about. As our deeds are judged, Christ will be glorified. Every knee shall bow before him. We shall rejoice and praise Jesus as as we see ever so much more clearly all that he has saved us from. We will delight in the abundance of his mercy and his grace. Justice will be perfectly served. Every unbeliever will be punished for his crimes. And even now, We look forward to that eternal reward that Christ will graciously give us. I leave you with these words, Jesus' words in Revelation 22, verse 12. Here Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. May our hearts respond, yes, come Lord Jesus, Maranatha, amen.